The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everyone, and can I add my welcome to that of, of Cobbies. My name is Al, and I'm a member here at, at the church, and uh, a real joy to be with you. Com- commiseration to if you uh, were watching the football earlier today, I was watching as well with my daughters. So close yet, so far, uh, maybe we'll do it in 20 years' time or something like that. So. <laughs> now, we're carrying on our, our sermon series in the Messianic Psalms, and today we're in Psalm 110, and there is quite a lot going on in this psalm, so we're going to need God's help to keep concentrating and to understand. So why don't I pray as we, as we come to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a chance to gather with your people this afternoon, and thank you that, that all over the world and all over London, Christians who love you have been gathering today. Help us as we come to the psalm written a long time ago, describing things we, we don't necessarily fully understand and Melchizedek and things like that. Pray that you'd help us to, to concentrate and, and help us to see the splendour of your Son more and more. Amen. Well, on Saturday, the 6th of May, was the coronation ceremony for King Charles. And, and what a ceremony it was. All the, b- the bells and whistles, the good and the great, assembled there in Westminster Abbey. I don't know if it's the kind of thing that you take time to watch. I, I did watch it, and I, I think if you did, can't help but raise all kinds of questions in your mind, like what do all of these little rituals mean, and how much did this whole thing cost, and uh, how did uh, the lady holding the sword, Penny Mordaunt, manage to hold it up for so long without her arms getting tied, all kinds of questions like that. Uh, and another question which I think many of us had, which is, what kind of a king is... Charles going to be? And you uh, can't but help ask that kind of question. Of course, his mum was the epitome of what you'd hope a monarch to be, a loyal servant of the state and of the people. But she was crowned back in 1953. Now it's 70 years later, the world is a different place. People have a different view of, of kings. And so it opened the debate all over the country. Do we want a king? What kind of a king? And it opened the debate all over the world. Countries like Australia and New Zealand and Jamaica are asking the question, do we want a king? Do we want Charles in our constitution and on our currency? Not just the general question of a monarch, but this monarch. What kind of a king will he be? And I think, I think that's a very pertinent question and a question which we can't help but ask about the Lord Jesus Christ. What kind of a king is Jesus? And what kind of a king will he be? You see, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. 
In the words of Colin Buchanan, who my kids listen to, Jesus is king, ruler over everything. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is a king who's good and who's powerful. But when we look around this world, we find ourselves asking questions. If Jesus is such a good and, and powerful king, then, then why is there evil in this world? Why is there this terrible war which is going on in Ukraine? Why are there serial killers like Lucy Letby? Why, as we prayed earlier, are Christian churches being burnt down in, in Pakistan? If Jesus is good, a good king, then why is this happening? And if Jesus is a powerful kingdom, why are people treating him with such disrespect? Why are people just ignoring the good news of the gospel? Why is the name of Jesus a joke and for some people a swear word? What kind of a king is he? Very important question. And that, I think, is the question that Psalm 110 really helps us to understand. The psalm here is an, an absolutely vital psalm. Now, I, I don't know what your impression was as we read through it. I think it comes across as a slightly obscure psalm at first reading. It's not very long. And it's got these sort of slightly strange bits in it about the, the dew of the morning and Melchizedek. And we might think to ourselves, well, there's 150 psalms in the Bible. It's okay if I don't understand a few. And maybe Psalm 110 will be one I, I don't really fully understand. But by many people's counting, Psalm 110 is the most quoted of all of the psalms in the Old Testament. So this is a, a really vital psalm that takes us to the heart of that essential question of what kind of a king Jesus is. And although there are a few bits that are a bit difficult, we'll see that the message is very, very simple. That Jesus is an opposed king, he's a priestly king, and a victorious king. So firstly, Jesus is an opposed king. Look with me at the superscription. It says, that's a little bit just at the top, it says, of David, a psalm. Now that superscription is in the original, it's there in the Hebrew text. And so we know that this is a psalm that David wrote. And generally, as we've been seeing, as we've studied the Messianic Psalms, it's a good question to ask, well, how is the psalm reflected in the life of David? Because he was the greatest of the Israelite kings. In many ways, he was a prefigurement of the, the, the Messiah. And so that is often a, a good question to ask. But in many of these messianic psalms, because they're so focused on Jesus, it's actually legitimate to go straight to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what many of the New Testament authors do as they quote the psalm. And that is, in fact, what David is doing himself. He's not talking about himself at all in the psalm. He just goes straight to Jesus. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord. Now, you've got two lords here in this verse. The first lord, where it says all caps, that is Yahweh. That is God the Father. And the second Lord is Adonai. It's a more general Hebrew word for Lord. So it's God the Father, Yahweh, says to my Lord. And this Lord here that it's referring to is the Messiah. Now Jesus makes that very clear in Matthew 22. You may remember the story there that he was in one of his classic debates with the Pharisees. And so he said to the Pharisees, Whose son is the Messiah? And this is a sort of 101 question for them. So that was very obvious. He is the, the son of David. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. And he says, well, why then, when David is writing about the Messiah, does he say, the Lord says to my Lord? Obviously, Jesus, obviously, David saw 
the Messiah as someone who was far, far greater than him. And that was the end of the discussion with the Pharisees. So Jesus very clearly saw this psalm as being about himself, all about the Messiah. And so did the apostles as well. Not just the Messiah, but the resurrected and ascended Messiah. You may remember that the Apostle Peter used this text on Pentecost. After they'd received the Holy Spirit, he he stood up and he preached this amazing sermon. And he quoted from, from the book of Joel. And then he quoted from Psalm 16, which we studied a few weeks ago. And then he turns to Psalm 110 and he said, This can't possibly be about David because David's body is in the tomb. You can go visit him in Jerusalem. Instead, this is about the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And then he quotes the rest of verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, after the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples for some 40 days. And then he, he ascended and went to his Father in heaven. And he was given all authority and all power. That's what it means to sit down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So verse 1 is talking about the ascended Messiah, who has received glory and power and authority. And one day he's going to come back and everyone who stands against him will be made subject to him. They will become a footstool under his feet. So it's talking about the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. But even though he's ascended, he is opposed. Look with me at verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. And a scepter is that kind of fancy stick that kings have. You might have seen a scepter if you've been to the Tower of London. There they have the sovereign scepter, which is a very exquisite gold stick with a ginormous diamond, which is the Cullinan diamond. I think it's 530 carats, which is quite a lot. But a fancy stick, which demonstrates the power and the authority of the king. So when it talks about God's scepter extending, it's talking about his power and his authority extending. Now, we know from the rest of the Bible that the way that God exercises his authority and his power in this world is through his word. It's through his word that he spoke this world into existence. It's through his word that people hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and accept his power and authority. And that is exactly what happened after Jesus ascended, that the disciples were scattered into the the regions around And they took the good news of the gospel, God's word. And it's as people heard the word that they received the lordship of Christ and bowed the knee to him. But even as that message went out from Zion, from Jerusalem, the good news was opposed. Some people listened and accepted the gospel, but many other people rejected and persecuted those who were bringing back good news. So this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, enthroned in heaven, but opposed on earth. But nevertheless, even though he's opposed, his kingdom is expanding through the power of his word. But Jesus is opposed on earth, but he's certainly not powerless. Look with me at verse 3. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle. 
arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. But this is talking about the day of final judgment. When Jesus comes with his holy angels, they are his troops arrayed in holy splendor. Now, the, the phrase at the end of verse 3 is a little tricky in the Hebrew where it talks about uh, the, the dew of the morning. It's a little bit complicated to translate, but most likely it's just a metaphor explaining this vast myriad of angels who come with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, imagine as you get up early in the morning, just as the night is, is, is leaving and as the new day is dawning, where there will be dew all over the grass, these tiny little droplets of pure water condensed out of the air, as far as the eye can see. And the, the metaphor is that just as the dark night of this current age comes to an end, and a new glorious age dawns, we'll say to Jesus will come with countless angels in order to bring in his new and eternal kingdom. So this is the picture that we see in these first three verses of Psalm 110 of Jesus, throned in heaven with his angels, ready to come and to bring final judgment. But on earth, opposed, and his kingdom expanding through the good news of the gospel going out into the world around us. Now this is very helpful as we seek to understand Jesus' rule in this world. It helps to get our expectations right that Jesus and the good news is rejected. See, for, for many people... The Lord Jesus Christ is a joke, is a swear word. But that's what we see right the way through the Bible. We've been seeing that in the Messianic Psalms. We know that from the Gospels that Jesus was rejected and his disciples were rejected and the early church was persecuted and faithful believers over church history have been persecuted. And today as well, so often the Gospel is rejected. That's what we see over here in Psalm 110. And so it helps us to get our expectations right. Yes, we might be discouraged by the state of the church in our country. Yes, sometimes it might feel like we're taking steps backwards instead of steps forward. But when we survey the bigger picture of salvation history, what we see is that although the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel is opposed, that it is expanding. And all over the world, there are those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, hundreds of millions of people. We see here that he is the opposed king. The opposed king, and secondly, we see that he is a priestly king. Look with me at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is the, the slightly confusing verse, I think, with this, with this guy, Melchizedek. And it really cuts through the flow of the, the whole of the, the section. The thing to notice here is that it's talking about priesthood. The rest of the, the, rest of the psalm, the rest of the passage is, is really focusing on kingship. But here it's, it's focusing on priests. Now, as you, you probably know, the, the priests in the Old Testament were the, the mediators, the go-between between God and his people. They worked at the temple, and the key thing that they did was to offer sacrifices. These sacrifices were to pay the penalty for the sins of the people to, to atone for their wrongdoing so that they could come into the presence of God and be God's friends. The priests were the go-betweens. 
And in ancient Israel, the, the role of priest and the role of king were two very separate things. And that was intentional. You didn't want your king to be priest, probably. The, the king, remember, was the leader of the army. He probably had a lot of blood on his hands. You didn't want him to be the one who was offering the sacrifice. So these roles were separate. And in fact, in, in ancient Israel, as Nick explained earlier, it was impossible to be both a king and a priest at the same time. That is because the king was from the tribe of Judah and from the line of David. And the priests were from the tribe of Levi and the line of Aaron. So it was a physical impossibility to be both a priest and a king at the same time in ancient Israel. It was, it was separation of powers. I guess over here in the UK you have separation of powers in Parliament. You've got a House of Lords and you've got the House of Commons. You can't be in both. Or in the US you've got the Senate and that, the House of Representatives. Separation of powers. It was the same in ancient Israel. And so when we talk about Jesus being a, a great high priest, we don't always necessarily see the potential problem in that. But for the, the readers, the original readers, the, the ancient Jewish, Jewish people, they would immediately have said, well, Jesus can't possibly be a priest because he's not of the, the line of Levi. And what David is saying here is, yes, he can, because he's a different kind of priest. He's not a Levitical priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek only turns up a, a few times. As Nick said earlier, he turns up in Genesis, here, Psalm 110, and also in Hebrews, and we read a little bit from Hebrews. And the story in, in Genesis, you may remember, is that Abraham had, had gone to rescue his nephew Lot. Lot was his nephew, but he had been taken hostage, kidnapped by some warlords. And so Abraham went to track him down. He beat the warlords. And after that, he was visited by Melchizedek. And the name Melchizedek in the Hebrew, Malchai means my king, and Zedek means righteous. So it means my king is righteous. And he was king of Salem, which is another name for Jerusalem. So righteous king of Jerusalem. And he was a priest and a king at the same time. And he came and met Abraham and he gave him bread and wine, a prefigurement of communion. And he blessed Abraham. And Abraham received that blessing. And in doing so, he acknowledged the legitimacy of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Abraham, the, the father figure of the Jewish nations. Now, now, we don't need to understand all of the details of Melchizedek. He is a rather shadowy figure who, who comes and goes. The point is that the precedent, that there was a precedent for these two separate roles to be joined together in, in one person, and that Abraham had acknowledged that. And so what, what David is saying here is that Jesus is this different kind of priest. He's not a Levitical priest. He is a priest like Melchizedek, where these roles have been combined. And actually, we wouldn't want Jesus to be a Levitical priest anyway, because as we saw in that reading in Hebrews, the Levitical priesthood was fundamentally flawed. For one, for, for, for one issue, the Levitical priests kept on dying. You know, you, you had, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's some funny side to that. The, um, so the, the Levitical priests came and go. They, they were only allowed to start serving in the temple at the age of, 
of 30. And then they had to take early retirement at 50, so you couldn't serve in the temple if you were old. And these priests came and go, they would eventually die. So you always needed more and more priests. And you also always needed more and more sacrifices. These sacrifices had to be offered again and again and again. And that's because the sacrifices were sacrifices of bulls and of lambs and of other animals. And these animals could never take away the the sin of the people. So as these sacrifices were offered again and again and again, it's as though they were a reminder saying, the price is still not paid. It's still not paid. It's still not paid yet. It's still not paid. We need some other kind of sacrifice, a better sacrifice to pay the price once and for all. And to have this better kind of sacrifice, you needed a better kind of priest. A priest which combined these roles of priest and king together. You see, Jesus is that perfect priest because he's fully God and fully man, the perfect go-between. And because he's a fully sinless man, he's able to offer himself once and for all to take away the sins of humanity. But much more than that, he's also a mighty king who had the power to rise again from the dead and to open a way once and for all between God and between humanity and to neutralize and destroy the power of evil so that humanity can dwell with God forever. That's the kind of priest we need. And that's the kind of priest it's talking about in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For all eternity, Jesus will be our high priest. The New Testament talks about in the new heavens and the new earth, people for all eternity praising Jesus as the lamb who was slain. We will always remember that. He will always be there, the one who has opened the door that we can be friends with God. And that is is a real encouragement to us. That helps us to understand why there's still sin in the world today and still evil. It's because Jesus is exercising this priestly ministry. Why did Jesus come as a tiny baby some 2,000 years ago? It wasn't to sort out this world and bring justice. It was to bring mercy and forgiveness through his death so that everyone who trusts in him can be saved. So if you're here today and you'd call yourself a Christian, then you're trusting in Jesus' priestly ministry. He died for you. And for all of those who trust in Jesus in the future, that that is why we we share the good news, isn't it? Here at Grace Church Broccoli, we we put on evangelistic events from time to time. I guess we'll be putting on one in a few months' time at, at Christmas. And, and what's the reason why we invite people here or elsewhere to sing Christmas carols and eat mince pies and look at pictures of baby Jesus? It's not to hear about a baby, but instead it's to hear about God himself come to earth to die on a cross to open a way so that we can be friends with God. That's the good news of the gospel. And so that helps us to understand, yes, there's pain and evil in this world. And and yes, God hasn't put an end to these things yet. And that's because he's holding out the offer of, of free forgiveness through Jesus and his priestly ministry. Well, that offer is is free for everyone. But God has set a day in the future where he will bring justice to this world. 
and he will put away evil once and for all. And that's the final thing we see, this victorious king. Look with me at verse 5 to 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the days on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead, and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and say so he will lift his head high. Well, these are stark words here that are talking about the relentless pursuit and destruction of evil once and for all on that day when Jesus comes. It's talking about judgment day, verse 6. He will judge the nations. Now the Bible gives us different images to help us to understand judgment day. One of those is of the law court. That God said a day when metaphorically the, the books will be open and all of our lives will be laid bare. And the reality is the Bible says that all of us will be shown to be guilty. That none of us can protest our innocence. That even the person who's never heard about God will be guilty because the truth of God is written in the stars. We're all guilty of rejecting that truth. But the good news is that forgiveness is free for all of those who repent of their sins and turn to him. But for those who persist in unrepentance, there is justice. And, and the law court image helps us to appreciate the justice of God, that it's measured, that he's patient, it's proportional. But the Bible also gives us the image of war to understand Judgment Day, that God has set a day when evil must be forcefully pushed out. It's not enough for him to just die on the cross. He has to come back and finally eradicate evil. Well, one of the ways to, to think about this is perhaps in World War II, the difference between D-Day and final victory. And you, you may remember that D-Day was a decisive battle that opened the way to the defeat of Hitler and the Nazis. This key turning point in the war. But it wasn't until later on that the Allies could claim final victory. And to do that, they needed to use overwhelming force in Europe and in the Pacific to put an end to evil. Well, in a far greater way, the cross is a decisive victory. At the cross, Jesus won victory over sin and Satan and death. And he opened a way that we can be friends with God. But he has to come back and one day finally totally make an end to evil. And that is the picture that we see over here. Relentless pursuit and destruction and eradication of evil. Now this is a stark image, but it's not just an Old Testament image. We see it in the New Testament. Jesus talks about coming back with his angels and we see it in, in Revelation, Jesus as the rider on the white horse, leading the armies of God against the armies of evil. Well, it certainly should make us think. These sober words should remind us that this day is set when Jesus is coming back to get rid of evil. And that should make us think about the evil in our lives. We can't tolerate evil. Evil has to be eradicated. And it should make us think about those whose lives are still set in conflict with Jesus, that one day they will have to face Jesus as their judge. But these words should also fill us with confidence that as we look around this world and we're saddened and discouraged by the things that we see, 
that we know that Jesus is the one who has the power to be able to deal with these problems. You see, I, I think we, we, we live in a world which longs for heroes to be able to deal with problems. We know that the problems are so big in this world that they have to be dealt with by a superhuman force in a sense. And increasingly, our culture, as we take God out of the picture, we have to construct another version of superhuman force. And so we have all of these stories and and movies of superheroes of various kinds. We know that these stories are, are made up. And we know that the heroes are flawed. But they indicate that deep longing and that deep acknowledgement that we need some kind of great power, a superhero, to deal with the deep problems of this world. And what we see here is that Jesus is that super force, fully God and fully human, come to deal with the problems of this world. And, And this psalm, Psalm 110, is a psalm that helps us to see Jesus more and more clearly. As we go into this week, there's no immediate take home, do this or do that. There's no moral of the story. There's no example to follow. Instead, more fundamentally, it's just fixing our eyes on Jesus. What kind of a king is the Lord Jesus Christ? Such a vital question to be able to answer. As we look at the world around us and we're discouraged by evil in the world and evil in our, our own hearts, and suffering and persecution of Christians. What kind of a king is the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus is an opposed king, enthroned in heaven, but his kingdom is expanding in this world. Jesus is a priestly king because he loves this world so much, he laid down his life as a perfect sacrifice. Jesus is a victorious king. He has the power to deal with the problem of evil. And he's coming back to do just that. Verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are that super powerful hero. Thank you that you are the king ruler over everything. And thank you that even though you're opposed in this world, your kingdom is slowly inching forward through your words. Thank you that you are so loving, that you gave down your life. And thank you that we know that one day you will come back and take your people to be with you in perfect safety forever. Amen.